back when all the world's creatures could speak. It burst into flame, the black smoke billowing into the air. May your life's deepest desires be fulfilled. We love stories! It's time for the Apple Seed. Filled with stories for you and your family. I'm Sam Payne, your host, and we love to bring you all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers on each episode of the show. And of course, we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show, no matter how fantastical, can spark thoughts and memories for you that you can share with the people that you love. That kind of sharing, that kind of storytelling, can make for memories that last a lifetime. And on this hour of the Apple Seed, we're bringing you stories driven by the question, who the heck are we anyway? Our personal identity may be defined by anything from our culture, our family, our religion, our values, our education, and more. And based upon all the factors of our lives, how do we define ourselves? What are we? Today's collection of stories examines the what and the why of who we are. Storytellers Pam Farrow, Ann Shimojima, Charlotte Blake Alston, Diane Edgecombe, Multico, Michael Reno Harrell, Robert Kikuche Ngoho, and Nancy Wang teach us more about our identity and what we can become. And we're going to begin with a folk tale from China. It's called 10,000 Treasure Cave, and it'll be performed for us by the storytelling duo Ethnotech. We're talking about Robert Kikuchi Ngoho and Nancy Wang. And they are a wonderful electric storytelling duo that's as much fun to watch as they are to listen to. Now, on the radio, you'll have to imagine a couple of things as the story goes by. Just because the storytelling performances by Ethnotech are so dynamic and visual and colorful, but you won't miss much and you'll be able to follow along just fine. You're sure to enjoy this story about a poor brother and sister who are gifted with a special reward for their kindness, and it soon becomes the object of desire of a wicked empress, and the brother and sister must counter her designs and protect themselves for their own sakes and the sake of their village as well. The story is 10,000 Treasure Cave, performed by Robert Kikuchi Ngoho and Nancy Wang. Ethnotech, here on the Appleseed. Ten Thousand Treasure Cave. A long, long time ago, in a far and distant land called the Middle Kingdom, otherwise known as China, a land of rolling hills and jagged mountain peaks, and low, fertile valleys where farmers dwelled. Now the farmers of this land worked hard to till the soil, and although their crops were bountiful, they were always poor. And this is because there was an evil, greedy empress who seized all their crops for tax. Now on this one fine day, on this one particular farm, there lived two farmers. The man's name was Koli, and the wife's name was Maymay. Koli, you have the one bowl of porridge for today. No, I'm not hungry. You have the one bowl of porridge for today. But you've worked so hard. You have it. Well, you've worked hard, too. You have it. No, you have it. I'm not hungry. Well, you have it. I'm not hungry. Well, you have it, please. Well, you have you it. Have it. No, you have you it. have it. You have it. You have it. You have it. Suddenly, there was a knock at the door. 
hungry old man. You have it. Doge, thank you. Why, the old man was so frail that he could hardly speak. All he could do was point in the direction of the mountains, and Koli, thinking that he wished to go home, kindly placed him on his back and carried him up the mountain path in the direction his fingers pointed. Through the forest, under low-lying branches, across raging rivers, and up, 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 a very steep cliff. And when they got there, the old man summoned his granddaughter. Yu Chuan, come here. This farmer and his wife were so kind and generous to me. Let's reward them with the secret of ten thousand treasure caves. Yes, Gung Gung. Young brother, beyond these mountains there is a treasure cave full of ten thousand treasures, any of which and all of which you may have. But first, fashioned from my earrings, are two keys: a gold key to enter the cave, and a silver key to leave the cave. Now, young brother. Whatever you do, do not enter the cave without the silver key to leave, or you will be locked in the cave forever. Oh, two keys, ten thousand treasure cave, anything we want. Oh, I must hurry home and tell May May. <laughs> May May. Holy. I am back. What happened? Two keys. Two keys. Ten thousand treasure cave. Ten thousand treasure cave. Anything we want. Anything. We'll be rich. Oh, I've always wanted a pair of woolen socks. Think of it. A comforter for the bed. Anything we want. And a plow to plow the land. A plow. How about some jade? Coley, can you plant jade and grow corn? Oh. Well, how about some sparkling rubies? Can you plant rubies and grow beans? Well, at least some fine pearls for your neck. Oh, that would be nice, but, but no, that doesn't benefit both of us. Hmm. I know something, something useful.、Uh, that makes sense. Hurry home. Something useful. <laughs> Ten thousand treasure cave. Oh, oh yes,、yeah. two keys: the gold key to enter, and the silver key to leave. Ah,、uh, first the gold key. As soon as Coley entered the treasure cave, the cave door slammed shut, and it was dark inside. But by the tenth step, a light began to shine and dazzle, dazzle, dazzle. Why there was jade, gold, pearls, rubies, silver, gold, egg, and everything, anything. Anything we want. <laughs> no, something useful, like ah, like that. Something useful. A white stone grinder for grinding wheat. Now that makes sense. <laughs>
And now, the silver key to leave. May May! I am back. Oh, what did you bring? A white stone grinder for grinding wheat. Now that makes sense. I can now become the grinder of wheat for our village. Useful. Here, you try it. No, you try it. You try it. No, you go first. You go first. No, you try it. You try it. No, no. Oh, all right, I'll go. Yeah. I'll try it. <laughs> oh. Gotta, 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 gotta. Shizzle. Piles. Gotta, 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 gotta. Shizzle. Mounds. Gotta, 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 gotta. Shizzle, shizzle. Heaps and heaps of wheat. Wheat. Magic. Magic. We'll never be hungry. We can share. With our neighbors. And share. And our friends. And share. The entire village. Oh, the villagers were so delighted that soon the word spread across the land. Meanwhile. <laughs> presenting Her Royal Highness, the Empress. Yes, now then, I am very royal. Royal. And very rich. Filthy. I have 2,000 head of cow. Cattle. 20,000 pigs. Sows. Oh, 10,000 chickens. Chickens. And all their little eggs. Poultry. And I own this palace, mm. the mountains, the valleys. Real estate. Oh, I have everything right. Right. Everything. Everything. Oh, right. 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 Wrong. Oh. I have heard. That in the valley there is a magic stone grinder, and I must have it now! In the name of Her Royal Highness, the Empress, you, who, that, what, white stone grinder, yes, is mine! No! Lovely. Let me see. I want to touch it. <laughs> but when the Empress touched the grinder, it turned into a pile of white ash. Useless. Off with your useless head. No. Katut, katut, katut. Oh, yuck. Oh, but don't worry. I have 99 more where that comes from. <laughs> May May. Do you think you should go back up to Treasure Cave? I have the two keys Shh. right here. Something useful. That makes sense. Hurry home. <laughs> Ten thousand Treasure Cave. Pick to enter the gold key. Dazzle, dazzle, gold, silver, pearls, sparkling rubies, anything we want. <laughs> no, something useful like that. A yellow stone mortar for pounding rice. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> the silver key. Where's the silver key? Oh, oh, I'll be trapped in here forever. No. Oh. oh. It's right here in my pocket. Oh, gosh. Oh. Oh. 
May May. Coley. I am back. What did you bring? A yellow stone mortar for pounding rice. Now that makes sense. I can now become the pounder of rice for our village. Useful. Here, you try. Okay, I will. Kutut, shaba 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 shaba. Piles, kutut, shaba 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 shaba. Mounds, kutut, shaba 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 shaba. Heaps and heaps of rice. Magic. We'll never be hungry. We could share with our neighbors and, share and our friends. And share the entire village. Oh, the villagers were so grateful that soon the word spread across the land. Meanwhile, <laughs> number ninety-nine reporting for duty, Your Highness. <laughs> Watch your head, Sonny. Yes. <laughs> Now then. I have heard that in the village there is a magic yellow stone mortar,、oh. and I must have it now. Kutut, you. Who? That. What? Yellow stone mortar. Yes. Is mine. No. Your Highness. Lovely, lovely. Let me see. Oh, it is very yellow. Watch out! Watch out! As soon as the empress touched the yellow stone mortar, it turned into a lump of yellow clay. Oh, useless! Off with your useless head! Now then, yuck! I must think of a different plan. Yes. May May, do you think you should go back to、oh, the treasure? I still have the two keys. Something useful. Makes sense. Hurry home. Oh, ten thousand treasure keys! The gold key to enter. Walloping, bing! No,、oh. something useful like that hoe. Hmm. Thok, 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 thok. <laughs> ah, the silver key to the silver key. Oh, oh, oh! Where's the silver key? Oh no, trapped again! Oh, how to get there? May May, I'm back. Oh, what did you bring? A hoe. A hoe for hoeing. A hoe, hoe, hoe. Try it. Hmm. Stunka. Oh. A magic giant cornstalk. Another. Stunka. Oh. Another. Stunka. 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 Oh. 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 Magic. Corn. We can share.、Uh, take it away. Share. Give it away. Share. Well, we're up to our ears. But nonetheless, the villagers were so thankful that soon. Not again. <laughs> you. Who? That. No. No. 
this time we're taking him. Not Colleen. Colleen! So, you're the one who's been finding all these magic things? Uh, yes. And you will tell me where you got them, yes? No way, Jose. Oh, then I'm afraid it's off with your useless head. Oh, oh wait, 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 wait. I, 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 uh, I won't tell you. What? I will show you. Oh, good boy, lovely. Ten thousand treasure cave, and to get in, there's this gold key. And gold key? Give me that. Lovely, lovely. I can't wait. Dazzle, dazzle, dazzle. All mine. But without the silver key. It's all useless! And Colleen took that silver key and threw it over the cliff. Ethnotech, Robert Kikuchi Ngoho and Nancy Wang with 10,000 Treasure Cave here on the Appleseed. Going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with a story from Pam Farrow here on the Appleseed. You're listening to the Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to the Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard a story called 10,000 Treasure Cave, told for you by Ethnotech, the storytelling team of Robert Kikuchi Ngoho and Nancy Wang. Just the first in an hour's worth of stories in which characters get to demonstrate who they are, anyway, through the choices that they make. And in this next story, told by Pam Farrow, a couple of men are nearly run over, but one responds with surprising compassion, wishing that the offender might receive whatever is his deepest desire. And his reason for that wish might surprise you. Here's the story, What is Your Deepest Desire?, told by Pam Farrow, here on The Appleseed. A teacher and his student were walking down the road one fine day, sharing their thoughts about the Quran and its teachings, and they were deep in conversation, when suddenly, behind them, there came a team of strong horses pulling a carriage filled with people, and they had just a moment to leap out of the way, off of the road, down into the ditch. The horses and the carriage with its people roared past them overhead, and down the road. The student clambered up out of the ditch and onto the road. He raised his clenched fist to shake after them. He opened his mouth to call a curse after their disappearing figure. When the teacher, standing on the road now, raised his hand and opened his mouth and called out first, 
May your life's deepest desires be fulfilled. <laughs> the student lowered his fist, turned to his teacher, and with a quizzical look asked, Why? Why in the world do you grant such a blessing after these people who nearly killed us? Well, said the teacher, if they truly had their life's deepest desire, do you think that they would treat anyone the way they just treated us? Pam Farrow with a tiny little story called What is Your Deepest Desire? Now, in the stories that we've told you so far, we've seen how our identity might be defined by what we have or by what we want or desire. And our next story might show how identity is related to what we do. Storyteller Ann Shimojima has been telling stories since 1982, and she reminds us that to be human is the greatest journey of all. In this story, she tells of a man who chooses between his wealth and his friends in the ultimate example that actions speak louder than words. The story is called Wave, and here to present it for you is Ann Shimojima. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. Lafcadio Hearn collected this legend in the late 1800s, a story about a village by the sea, just 90 thatched houses nestled at the base of a mountain. The people there grew rice, and you could see the rice fields all around and even going up the side of the mountain like green terraced steps. Above the rice fields, there was a temple where the people would worship, and above the temple stood the largest house in the village. It was the home of Gohei Hamaguchi and his grandson, Tada. Hamaguchi-san was the head man of the village. He was an old man, but he was the wealthiest of all the villagers and so loved and respected that the people called him Oji-san, which means grandfather. He was so wise that the people would often go to him with their troubles, and he would give advice and sometimes money to help. One autumn day, Oji-san stood on the outside veranda of his house. From that place, he could look all the way down the mountain and see the whole village, first his own rice fields. The rice had been cut and gathered into stacks at the end of every row. It had been a good harvest, such a good harvest, the people were planning to celebrate that night with a festival. He could see the banners and the lanterns hanging in the temple courtyard in readiness for the celebration. He could see the people's rice fields, the houses, the beach, and finally, the sea. The air was warm and strangely heavy. It was earthquake weather. And as he stood there on the veranda, he began to feel the slow shaking of an earthquake. Now he was not alarmed. They lived through several earthquakes every year, but this one seemed different. It started deep, deep below the surface of the earth. The earth shook and stilled. And then... Oji-san looked at the water of the ocean, and he saw something he had never seen before. 
the water was moving in the wrong direction. The water was pulling away from the land. It looked like the water was running away from the land. The people in the village were beginning to notice this strange sight. They were gathering down on the beach, talking to each other, pointing out to sea. No one had ever seen this before. No one knew what it meant. But Oji-san, standing there, began to remember when he was a little boy, his grandfather telling him of the very same thing happening when he was a little boy. And Oji-san knew what was to come. It was great danger, but there was no time to run all the way down the mountain to warn the people. There was no time even to get to the priest to ask him to ring the bell. He turned to his grandson. Tata, he said, light me a torch. The boy obeyed immediately, bringing him a lit pine torch. Oji-san took the torch and ran down to the edge of his rice field to the first row. He hesitated for only a moment, looking at all his work for the past year, all his wealth. And then he raised the torch and lit the first rice stack. Immediately, it burst into flame, the black smoke billowing into the air. He did not hesitate, but he ran to the second row and lit that stack, too. And the third row, Tata ran beside him, crying, Ji-chan, Ji-chan, what are you doing? What are you doing? The old man did not answer, just kept lighting row after row. Tata ran back to the house, crying. He thought his grandfather had gone crazy. Finally, the old man had lit the last row. He dropped his torch. He went back to his house, to the veranda, and he waited. It was a priest at the temple who first saw the black smoke billowing into the air. Ah, he thought, Oji-san's rice fields are burning. We must help. And he began to ring the bell over and over and over until finally the people, still standing on the beach, still pointing out to the water, which was still Running away from the land, at last the people turned and looked up the mountain and saw the black smoke billowing into the air. Ah, they cried, Oji-san's rice fields are burning, we must help. And they began to run up the side of the mountain, every man, woman, and child, for the old man was well loved. It was the young men and women who reached him first. Water, they said. Where's the water? We'll help you put out the fire. But he said, no, let the fields burn. What? Let the fields burn? He did it himself, said Tata. I saw him. He lit the fields himself. You lit the fields yourself? But why? There is great danger, he said. Everyone must come, everyone. And gradually, they did all come the children running up, the mothers with the babies upon their backs, and finally the old people leaning upon their canes. And when he saw that everyone was there, he said, Yes, I lit my rice fields. Look, look to the sea. The people turned, 
and saw the water still pulling away from the land. And then, before their unbelieving eyes, the water rose up into a solid wall of water, high, higher, impossibly high, and that wall of water began to rush towards the shore, tsunami, the great wave. And that wall of water crashed upon the beach and sent the wood from their houses flying through the air. And then the water pulled back once again and rose up into a wall of water that crashed upon the beach three times, four times, five times, but each time growing weaker and weaker until finally the water settled itself back in its ocean bed, dark and uneasy. The people stared at the wreckage of their houses, at the beach where only moments before they had been standing. That, said Oji-san, that is why I burnt my rice fields. And one by one the people turned, and one by one they sank to their knees and bowed to the old man who stood before them, once the wealthiest of them all, now a poor man, but he had saved four hundred lives. Come, he said, my house still stands, and the temple too, there is room for many, come. And he turned, and he led the way. Wave, a story by Anne Shimojima here on the Apple Seed. Stick around, there's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear Charlotte Blake Alston and Diane Edgecombe and Michael Reno Harrell. It's all coming up in just a moment. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to the Apple Seed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to the Apple Seed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, a story called Wave by Anne Shimojima. And coming up, Charlotte Blake Alston with a story called Anansi's Children. And in this story, Anansi's sons collaborate to save their father, each using their own unique talents to do so. And this story may give us pause in thinking that our identity is also influenced by our skills and by our relationship with our family. This is the West African spy. Spider trickster Anansi in Anansi's Children with Charlotte Blake Alston here on the Appleseed. Long ago, back when all the world's creatures could speak, there lived in a far corner of the Ashanti kingdom Anansi the spider. Now, back when all the world's creatures could speak, the nights were black and long. Now the younger creatures could peer through the darkness because their eyes were strong enough. But the elders among them had to make sure that if they walked away from their village, they made sure to return before nightfall. Now Anansi had six children. The first of his children was Akakai which means able to see trouble. He had the ability to see trouble happening at great distances away. The second child of Anansi was Tua Akwan, which means road builder. 
Road Builder could take sticks or twigs or mud or bricks or stone, anything, and build a road to anywhere. The third child of Anansi was Hue Nsuo, able to dry up rivers. Now, river drinker could hold all of the water in a river in his jaws. The fourth child of Anansi was Adwafo, the skinner of game. He could, with his bare hands, rip the skin off of a fish or game in a matter of seconds. The fifth child of Anansi was Toto Abuo, stone thrower. It is said that he once threw a stone so far that it knocked a star out of its original position in the sky. The sixth child of Anansi was Daiya, which means lie on the ground like a cushion. The villagers simply called him Cushion, and he was very valuable in the village because he would follow the children around, and sometimes they climbed high in places where, just like you, they did not belong, and they fell Cushion would slide under the child and cushion the fall. Well, one day Anansi traveled far from his village, and when night fell, Anansi had not returned. Akakai, see trouble, peered into the darkness and could see that their father was in trouble. Quickly, Twa, Akwan, road builder, built a road, and all other brothers followed that road till they came to the river. But they still could not see Anansi. Akakai peered down into the water and could see that Anansi was inside the belly of a fish. Quickly, Huen Suo took a big drink of that river water and held the entire river in his jaws. Adwafo, game skinner, he ripped the skin off of that fish and Anansi came walking out in between the bones. Well, just as they were about to walk home with their father, a hawk swooped down picked up Anansi and began to carry him up into the sky. Quickly, Totoabu, a stone thrower, he took a stone and he threw it. It hit the hawk. The hawk released Anansi, and now Anansi was falling faster, faster, faster down to the earth. Doyaya, Cushion, he lay down, and Anansi landed softly on Cushion's soft belly. Well, they walked back with their father to the village. And Anansi was walking behind his home thinking of what his children had done for him that day, and wanted to give a gift to the child that was most responsible for his return. Well, he came across a great round globe of light. The sky god, Nyame, had heard Anansi talking out loud about what his sons had done for him. Nyame said, When you could not see your way out of darkness... Your children provided the light. A gift of light should be given. But Anansi could not decide which child should get the gift. So he called the villagers together, sat his children before him, and announced that he would give the globe of light to the child that was most responsible for his return. Well, the villagers began to argue among themselves. Some said it should be Akakai, see trouble. He was the one that knew in the first place that Anansi was in trouble. Others said Twa Kwan, road builder. Otherwise, they would not have gotten to their father. And they argued back and forth. Some said stone thrower, some said Christian, some said game skinner. Well, the sons argued among themselves. Well, Anansi took a walk and called upon Yami, the sky god of the Ashanti people, and said that they cannot decide. They are arguing among themselves. I don't know what to do. 
Niame said, this is what I will do. I will take this globe of light and place it high in the sky where all can share in its light and be reminded of how all of your children saved you from danger that day. Now, we are all Anansi's children. And when you look up into the night sky and you see that great globe of light and it seems to be shining its brightest, you can be sure that somewhere one of Anansi's children is lending someone a helping hand. Might that child be you? Anansi's Children, from Charlotte Blake Alston, on an episode of The Appleseed, in which characters get to learn a little bit about what they are, what makes them, them. Now, it's said that the quieter you become, the more you can hear. As we experience and re-evaluate who we are, perhaps the peace and quiet might be an inspiration for us. Diane Edgecombe takes us to a peaceful and quiet place, walking us through an ash grove where we might reflect. It's from a collection of stories called In the Groves, stories from all over the world about trees. Diane Edgecombe, here on The Appleseed. Down yonder green valley where streamlets meander As twilight is fading, I pensively rove Or at the bright noontide in solitude wander Amidst the dark shade of the lonely ash grove Tis there where the blackbird is cheerfully singing Each warbler enchants with his note from a tree Ah, then little think I of sorrow or sadness The ash grove, the ash grove Spells beauty for me The ash grove, how graceful, how plainly tis speaking The wind through its leaves speaks a language for me Whenever the light through its branches is breaking A host of kind faces are smiling on me The friends of my childhood again are before me. Each step wakes a memory as freely I roam. With soft whispers laden, its breeze rustles o'er me. The ash grove, the ash grove, alone is my home. Peace and quiet in the ash grove. Do you have a place filled with peace and quiet where you like to go and reflect? Let us know about it. Theappleseed at byu.edu. That's our email address, theappleseed at byu.edu. We love to hear from you. Up next, a story from Motoko, who tells of a woman who consults with a Buddhist monk on the difference between heaven and hell. And he shows her two images of the same scene. With one important difference, here's the story, Heaven and Hell, from Motoko, here on The Appleseed. 
A tired old woman rushed along a dusty forest road. Her hands were empty, but she clearly bore a heavy load. She stopped to catch her breath and then continued on her way. It was said a famous wise man would be visiting that day. So she raced to meet him, peace of mind her only goal. For her burden was the question what would happen to her soul? Weary from the road, at last she reached the temple ground. She was amazed and yet relieved that no one was around. It meant that she could have the wise man to herself that day. She'd have the time to ponder everything he had to say. She found him sitting quietly inside the temple hall. He was a gentle, humble man, rather frail and small. Yet, with a single glance into his eyes, she saw his fire. In him, she saw no hint of fear, no anger or desire. He offered her a gentle hand to help her to the floor. She felt calmer in that moment than she'd ever felt before. She straightened her kimono as she got down on her knees. Master, she said softly, may I ask a question, please? I'll do my best to answer whatever you may ask. Sometimes, finding the right question is the harder task. Does it matter what I do? Is there heaven and hell? I thought that it would put my mind at ease if you could tell. He reached over, took both her hands, and said, Now, close your eyes. I'm going to take you on a trip, a journey of the wise. First, a mist surrounded them. Then with a sudden flash, the temple walls around them simply crumbled into ash. They stood then in a banquet hall. There lay a sumptuous feast. But the host of people seated were not eating in the least. Their hands were tied to chopsticks, each no less than five feet long. No matter how they tried to get the food, it came out wrong. So they starved and suffered with the wealth of food in view. They cried and they wailed as though there was nothing else to do. The old woman felt heartbroken to see such a wretched sight. Is this the fate, she asked, of those who don't know wrong from right? Hell is not just punishment. You must look much deeper yet. Once I show you heaven, you see they are a matching set. He took her hands again, and then they merely turned around. One full circle, one slight change, Simple, yet profound. 
this time, there were hosts of feasters laughing all together. What an elegant solution! They just had to feed each other. Suddenly, the sound of laughter woke her from her trance. The laughter came from deep inside. Her heart began to dance. For now, she finally understood that she had no need to fear. How she had to live her life was now completely clear. No fear for future pain, no hope for future joy and peace could guide her to her inner self or make her love increase. Each of us must somehow find the higher self within. Love and gratitude for life is one place to begin. She left the wise man thanking him for such a precious gift. No longer between her heart and mind was there any rift. Grandmother, mother, sister, daughter, best friend, and wife. She walked the forest road again, back into her life. Motoko with a story called Heaven and Hell. And up next, here's something from our old friend Michael Reno Harrell, who, in an episode of The Appleseed featuring stories that ask the question, What are we anyway? sings a song called Then There's Me. Here's Michael Reno Harrell on The Appleseed. I'm 
dancing down a red clay highway The city of New Orleans rolling out of Kankakee Daddy says he might as well be talking to the wall Mama running for the telephone ringing down Our friend Michael Reno Harrell with a song called Then There's Me here on the Apple Seed. It's been an hour's worth of stories in which characters get to find out who they are in one way or another. And we thought we'd wrap up with a little entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Apple Seed. Did you ever hear someone drop the old piece of folk wisdom, wherever you go, there you are? I used to hear people say, wherever you go, there you are, and I dismiss it as a sort of comical piece of fake philosophy. Turns out there's a version of that same piece of wisdom in the writings of Confucius. But for sure, most of my young life, I'd say to someone, tell me something important, and they'd lean in and say, importantly, Wherever you go, there you are. And I'd feel like I'd been had. I was looking, perhaps, for better life advice, wiser advice, less obvious advice about what my life might hold. Not too long ago, and you may remember it, we thought together about Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken. You know the poem about the two roads that diverged in a yellow wood. It's the poem that ends with this stanza. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. I always thought it curious that Robert Frost never makes a value judgment about the road he chooses to take. He doesn't say, I took the one less traveled by, and I was right. He doesn't say people should take the road less traveled by, even. He just says that the road that he took made all the difference. The difference between what and what? Well, presumably, the difference between what the poet is, having taken the road he took, and what he might have been had he taken some other road. He doesn't make a value judgment about which road would have been best. What he does say in the stanza before the last stanza is that he knows that having chosen a road, you never get to come back and make the choice you didn't make. Here's how he puts it, standing there, looking at the two roads. He says, And both that morning equally lay, In leaves no step had trodden black, Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet, knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. The Robert Frost poem understands that no matter what you try, 
no matter how fervently you say, I'll make this choice this time, and if it doesn't work out for me, I can come back and choose the thing I didn't choose, every way leads on to another way. And in the end, you can't come back to the crossroads. Every choice is, in one way or another, irrevocable, irrevocably moving us always, always forward. My wife and I just got done reading a book together about guys who dive shipwrecks for treasure and adventure, Robert Curson's Shadow Divers. And the guys in this book find themselves trying to unravel the mysterious identity of a particular sunken ship. And in this quest, these divers are always spurring each other onward into situations more and more dangerous. And they always say to each other that in the quest to discover the identity of this wreck they'll discover who they really are. There are moments of incredible peril in the story, where these divers have to take their lives into their hands, hundreds of feet under the water, perhaps in a way that will come within a hair's breadth of ending their lives. And as they plunge into danger, they do it with that mantra on their lips, that doing this will reveal to them who they really are. And in a particularly dangerous scene in which one of the divers' lives hangs in the balance, my wife turned to me and said, What if he decides at this moment to turn around and swim safely away? Go back to the surface, to his life and his family. Would he find out less about himself doing that than dangerously pressing forward into the pages of this book? That conversation for us became even more interesting than the rest of the divers' story. That would have been a different road, for sure, for that guy. A better road? A worse road? A more or less noble or useful or important road? It's so incredibly difficult to say from the outside. And we tend so frequently to look with an eye of judgment on the decisions other people make and what they become. Some years ago, I accepted an audacious professional invitation, and I became the principal of a small high school. I didn't spend many years there, but I lived and died with the terrific students and faculty of that school. I fought for them and prayed for them and rejoiced and sorrowed with them. And there were a million high-stakes decisions to make every day, a million crossroads. And sometimes I chose one road, and sometimes I chose another, and it took a lot out of me, that choosing— And in each choice, I found myself. I'm not saying that the people around me found me. Sometimes you hope that might be true, but the truth is they were busy finding themselves in the choices they made during that time. And I'm not saying that some of the choices I made weren't looked on with the eye of judgment. It's too hard, especially when the stakes are high, not to do that sometimes. But I am saying that I found myself... And it's been some years since then that I still treasure the things I found. We find ourselves in the choices we make, the roads we choose. In other words, wherever we go, there we are. Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed.
Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. Pleasure to have you with us today. Our audio engineer is Stuart Foster. This hour was written by Jen Baker. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne. Find us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed or Google the Appleseed podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.